there. This is How to Choose, the show that helps you make better decisions and improve your judgment. Thanks for joining us. I'm Tessa. And I'm Ken. And in this, our fifth season of How to Choose, we're examining eight characteristics of great decision makers. So what are we talking about this episode, Ken? Well, today we're talking about the value of being adaptable. Maybe to kick us off, do you want to explain why we need to be adaptable? Let's start with the most obvious reason, because change is inevitable and change demands adaptation. The Greek philosopher Heraclitus famously said, change is the only constant in life. And the Elizabethan era poet Edmund Spencer talked about the ever-whirling wheel of change. Change is happening all around us. And if you feel a bit skeptical about that, just reflect on the fact that you cannot freeze time, even if somehow you can create an environment that does not change. You yourself will change. Yeah, this is so true. When I think about the person I was at 18, it's just so different to who I am today. And if I'd set out a course for myself then, it would have looked nothing like what has actually happened. So adaptability is very necessary. And here's an amazing stat that confirms that about 330 billion cells in your body are replaced each day. So 1% of your cells are replaced each day. And you are literally a different person than you were last year. Of course, we experience different degrees of change and different rates of change at different points in our lives. Sometimes it feels like things are fairly stable and static for a number of years. And then change can be really unexpectedly sudden and dramatic at other times. And that can be in the workplace too, can't it? Yeah, absolutely. Sometimes we're in the driver's seat. We make choices in the workplace that bring about those changes, but other times we have no control over the changes. Sometimes the changes are positive, sometimes they're negative, sometimes we have no strong views about them. But even in that case, those changes can have a really big impact on us. And this anxiety about change in the workplace isn't new. I was just reading today that back in 1758, a water-powered wool shearing machine was introduced in England. How exciting. What did the shearers think about this great new idea? Well, they set fire to it. (laughs) Why? (laughs) Because the machine threatened to make them redundant. And Karl Marx in his famous series of works, Capital, talked a lot about this, this anxiety that workers suffer from. Mm, I bet there's a lot of similar anxiety about AI, actually, and and what it's going to be doing to people's jobs. It's just a bit hard to set fire to something uh, so (laughs) ethereal. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Um, And this could also include people leaving or joining our team at work or maybe even changing management because our roles can change too, forcing us to take on new responsibilities, maybe even learn new skills. And think of the cataclysmic change that some businesses faced as a result of COVID. Sometimes change can feel like a blessing, but often it's pretty tough to cope with. And our personal lives inevitably involve change. Apart from just, you know, the inevitable impacts of aging, life offers a number of different stages that many of us progress through. Now, two of your kids are now adults, aren't they, Ken? Yes, yes. And it's pretty confronting when you realise your kids aren't kids anymore. Mm. I mean, particularly reaching adulthood because it presents us with new legal rights and empower us to make so many new choices. You know, you're able to make choices about driving, drinking, sex, marriage, and make choices at the ballot box when our governments hold elections. Yeah, and after reaching adulthood, there's other stages and changes, aren't there? I mean, it's entering the workforce, maybe marrying, moving in with a new partner, starting a family, ending a relationship, um, facing up to the serious illness or death of loved ones. 
seeing our dependence become independence, as I'm seeing at the moment. Sometimes, as we've talked about before, our choices are driving the changes, but sometimes the changes just happen to us against our will. And most of the changes are going to test how adaptable we are. Do we step up and take on the new responsibilities of adulthood? Or do we remain a man-child or woman-child, physically mature, but otherwise immature and irresponsible? Um, Do we make that shift from child to adult when we start life with a partner? Or do we still behave childishly, expecting our partner to be the responsible adult in the relationship? And are we able to move forward in life when we experience loss? Yeah, I, I mean, I definitely know people who resist the change that's being thrust on them. But it doesn't normally work out well. Because fighting change doesn't actually stop it from recurring. It normally just creates more stress and tension in your life. Yeah, and here's a recent personal example of a a minor but frustrating change in my life. I jogged to keep fit, but a few months ago I had some problems with my knees and it forced me to stop running. And during that time I saw a doctor, I saw a physiotherapist, I had some tests done. Uh, The problem seemed to be a combination of some osteoarthritis and some joint instability that was exacerbated by previous injuries. So I had to stop and say, well, look, what options have I got? Do I stop running altogether? Um, Do I keep running and ignore the pain? But I had to face the fact that my body is changing as a result of age and wear and tear on my knee joints. So what I did was I thought about, well, what what was my purpose? We talked about that early in this season. What was my purpose? It was to build cardiovascular fitness. I didn't want to give up that purpose and that goal. Instead, I had to adjust the strategy. So, you know, I think that running is a really good option. It's my most realistic option for getting fit. So what I'm doing is following medical advice. I'm doing some exercises to strengthen my legs. I'm wearing knee braces that are really annoying, um, but are helping me. Uh, And I've gone back to first principles to try and gradually build up distance and speed, but monitoring the pain, like being realistic and honest about what's going on. So I'll see how it goes over the next few months and I'll probably adapt further if I need to. Yeah, Ken, that's a great example. So frustrating when it's something that's so core to you, but it sounds like you're teaching a really, you know, realistically optimistic path as well towards recovery. And and sometimes, yeah, look, we do adapt, but other times we resist adaptation, don't we? And, And look, one of the most famous corporate examples is that of Kodak Eastman. And if you've ever done any study of management and leadership, you've probably come across this story. Are you familiar with this one, Tess? Yeah, I've heard the broad brushstrokes of this one. It's very much a head in the sand moment, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And I think anyone who grew up before digital photography will be very familiar with the Kodak company. Kodak was one of those brand names that was part of everyday speech like Coke or Kleenex or Google, um, none of whom are currently sponsors of the show. So please reach out if you'd like to be involved with the podcast. In fact, we'd even be willing to hear from Kodak. Um, But in 1981, and I'll tell the story, Kodak was a Fortune 500 brand. It had annual sales that were above $10 billion and profit margins as high as 80% on its best-selling products. Kodak's specialty was print film and Digital photography was just about to supersede print photography. So Julie Hodges and Roger Gill provide a really good summary of the story if you want to read about it uh, in an article titled Kodak Reacting to Core Market Changes. So I'll quote that article to tell a bit more of the story. Kodak faced an unprecedented magnitude of change. The speed with which Kodak's core market for traditional silver halide roll film has collapsed in recent decades, is blistering. 
But one compelling theory is it wasn't the speedy pace of the change that undermined Kodak, but it was the fact that it was drawn out over decades. So it sounds a bit like the frog in the kettle metaphor. In other words, Kodak first pioneered digital technologies in the 1970s and 1980s. But until relatively recently, the urgency of the challenge was never quite sharp enough to persuade its employees, its investors and executives that it had to overhaul or even sacrifice those time-honoured ways of doing business. In 2000, with Wall Street sceptical about the promise of digital photography, Kodak was still searching for a way to bridge the gulf between its dominance of the highly profitable roll film business and the lower margin, highly competitive digital future. Successful chief executives talked up the opportunities, but each failed to break down the structural, cultural and strategical obstacles to change. The company's dominance of the sector and confidence in its brand and marketing also led it to rest on its strategic laurels. Kodak was dragged down by the alluring comfort of being on top. When people are saying that the sky is falling but the dollars keep rolling in the door, it's easy to deduce that people are overreacting. Yes, the urgency just isn't there when you're on the top and complacency can set in. Much easier to see the need to adapt when you're an up-and-comer trying to eke out your share of the market. And this actually reminds me a lot of the rise and fall of BlackBerry, which we've discussed earlier this season too. Yeah, very similar. And it's a powerful illustration of our second reason for why we need to be adaptable, and that is because failure is a step on the road to success. Unless we can adapt, we cannot learn from our mistakes. Kodak Eastman has now adapted, I'm told, after a significant failure, and I believe it's focused on commercial printing and the entertainment industry. But time will tell if the company can again climb the heights of success it once enjoyed. There are very few goals. I don't know if you agree with this test, but there are very few goals that are achieved by an unbroken series of successes. Usually along the way, we have setbacks where we don't make the progress we're aiming for and even where we end up going backwards. I recently came across a quote that I really like, and it says, success is not final. Failure is not fatal. It is the courage to continue that counts. Um, But I'd add to that, it's not just the courage to continue doing the same thing that you were doing, but it's the courage to make the changes necessary to achieve your goals. Mm, And there's some really famous examples of this kind of perseverance, aren't there? Uh, A lot of people will be familiar with the story of Thomas Edison making thousands, 2,774 to be precise, of filament light bulbs that did not work before finding success. And a more recent example, James Dyson had 5,126 failed attempts to make a bagless vacuum cleaner before hitting success. Yeah, it's amazing. The only way that either of them achieved their success was persevering, but it was also adapting. It's not just doing the same thing over and over again. And even though we understand this, it can be difficult to be adaptable, can't it? Yeah, it's so strange, isn't it, how we can understand something logically so that our capacity to be rational breaks down under pressure. Yeah, Tim Harford, who wrote a fascinating book called Adapt, Why Success Always Starts With Failure, describes his interactions with professional poker players who explain to him that there's a particular moment when poker players are most vulnerable to making an emotional, non-rational decision. And as Harford says, it's not when they've won a huge pot or when they've drawn a fantastic hand. It's when they've just lost a lot of money through bad luck a bad beat or bad strategy, 
the loss can nudge a player into going on tilt, making overly aggressive bets in an effort to win back what he wrongly feels is still his money. The brain refuses to register that the money has gone. Acknowledging one's loss and recalculating the strategy would be the right thing to do, but that's too painful. Instead, the player makes crazy bets to rectify what he unconsciously believes is a temporary situation. It isn't the initial loss that does for him, but the stupid plays he makes in an effort to deny that the loss has happened. Look, Ken, I'm not a regular poker player, but I've played enough to empathise with this. I've definitely gone all in before in an attempt to recoup my losses. (laughs) Um, But what we're really talking about here is the sunk cost fallacy. You know, it's a tendency to push onwards to try and avoid the regret that we'd experience if we just accepted reality. You know, we find it hard to adapt at times because we refuse to accept that things aren't working out. And we just stubbornly double down and try to cover up the failure or loss instead of examining it and learning from it. Yeah, and failure is unpleasant and change can be unpleasant. It can be unwelcome. Sometimes we refuse to adapt because we just don't want things to change. So let's talk about what we can do to be more adaptable. Firstly, we need to make sure that we have realistic expectations. Specifically, we should expect that change will happen. It will help you to notice it when it does happen and it might make it a little bit easier to accept. Although some change is traumatic and it shouldn't be trivialized. Yeah, I have to say that I, I'm a little concerned when I hear expectant parents say, we're not planning to change our lives when the baby arrives. We'll just bring the baby along wherever we go and we'll include them in what we're doing. We shouldn't have to give up anything that we currently do. And you can keep doing a lot of things when you have a new baby, but if your expectation is that you shouldn't have to adapt at all, then you're in for a pretty big shock, I think. Would you agree with that, Tess, as the mum of a pretty little toddler? Yeah, and and one on the way. I have no doubt that I'm going to need to be very adaptable in the next few months. Yeah. Uh, This is such a perfect example, uh, Ken, of the necessity of being adaptable because it's just so different to anything you've ever experienced and no amount of reading or babysitting can prepare you for it. The only way to survive is to adapt uh, to them, to your new sleep-deprived self and your new partner as everything is about to change. And thinking your lifestyle won't change that much will only make you stressed and disappointed when it's inevitably upended. So true. Uh, The second thing we can work on is to practice responding flexibly. Materials that lack flexibility are brittle. They don't cope well with some stresses. So cast iron is an example. It's really hard, but it's brittle. Uh, By adding other materials and by treating it through a process called annealing, where the metal is heated up, we can improve its flexibility. And change is a bit like that annealing process. If we submit to it, it gives us an opportunity to develop flexibility. What does that look like? Well, when change happens, we can choose not to overreact. We can choose to apply a positive attitude and try to identify opportunities when change comes rather than simply focusing on the losses. We can adapt constructively and enthusiastically, and that is a choice. It's that optimism that we've talked about before. Practicing this kind of flexibility can help us the next time change comes. Some people are naturally flexible, and their careers involve lots of what we called hedge pruning in Season 1, Episode 4. So we'd strongly encourage you to check out that episode if you want to learn more about that. And thinking about it, what we're really talking about, Ken, is attitude. We choose how we react to change. We can be resistant or we can apply that realistic optimism we spoke about in episode three of this season. Yeah, exactly. And the third thing we can work on is developing versatility. Versatility is about developing and nurturing different skills that will give us the capacity to change. 
When opportunities to upskill come along, seriously consider taking them. They might give you the edge that will help you to survive when change does come along. Yeah, that's right. And there's a range of things that we can do. It might be taking a course or it might be proactively taking on some new responsibilities at work. Um, It might be shadowing someone else who does a different job and learning a new skill. So basically, if your environment has changed or if you have changed, then you may need to ask yourself, how might I need to either modify my goals or strategy to achieve those goals, just like Ken did with running? Yes, but we should also talk about exceptions. Yes, it's important to emphasize that we don't have to accept every change that happens. If someone's trying to impose a change on you that poses you harm or conflicts with your values, then don't simply accept that change. Raise your concerns, challenge it, push back. And if despite your efforts, the unacceptable change is still going to happen, you need to decide what to do. You might find that you need to remove yourself from that environment or that relationship. So Ken, can you remind us of those tips of how to improve our adaptability? Yeah, sure. So number one, have realistic expectations. Change is inevitable and failure is inevitable. So be realistic about that. Uh, Secondly, practice responding flexibly when change comes, so long as the change isn't a big deal. In other words, it doesn't pose harm to you or others or compromise your values. Not every change deserves a brittle response. And number three, develop your versatility. Learn some new skills, gather some new experience so that you're positioned to respond well to change when it happens. Mm. Now, for me, the key takeaway from this episode is really that adaptability is often hardest when you're on top. So if you're riding a wave of success, whether it's career or personal, don't knock back change over the status quo as that success doesn't always last. Well, if you've enjoyed the show, please follow us and check out our website, goodbetterright.com.au. And don't forget to tell your friends too. Many podcast players allow you to share an episode or even just a portion of an episode. Just share your key takeaway. And make sure you tune in for our next episode where we will be discussing the attribute of being reflective. Bye for now. 